Well, good morning, Thrive Church. How are we doing today? Awesome. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now, I woke up this morning in such a good mood. The weather has been fantastic recently. Fall has arrived, finally. The cooler air is moving in. It's starting to get darker earlier, and that means that everyone's kind of back into their normal routines and schedules. And for some, that means they're starting a brand new way of life, a brand new schedule. In fact, I've been talking to a lot of uh, students that I've been hearing stories lately of students who have uh, graduated from high school and they've started college. And there's a common theme that's happening with all of these students. They're homesick. They're feeling really down. They're feeling really depressed. And it's because their, their way of life, their comfort is kind of just taken away from them. Now they're having to step out of their comfort zones, especially those who are moving a little bit further away and they can't just hop on home throughout the week. And a lot of these individuals, a lot of these students, I've heard, want to give up. They just want to quit. They, they just want to go home, go back to their way of life, get back to the way things used to be so that they can feel comfortable, that they can feel safe. And I can sympathize with these students. See, because when I went to college, I didn't know anybody. I didn't go to college in my hometown. I didn't have the luxury of having a roommate that I had met before I got to college. See, I moved nine hours away to a new city. I didn't know anything about it, and I was terrified. I didn't know anybody except for my great uncle. He lived in this town, but it was so sad, right? Because I can remember vividly being in my dorm room, my roommate's gone. He was a townie, so he just, he went and did his own thing. He was already established. And there was this one particular day where it just was like rainy and gloomy. And I was just so sad and depressed. Has anybody ever felt like that before? Just sad and depressed because the weather's just bringing them down. Well, my uncle decided he wanted to take me around the town to just show me around and kind of lift my spirits a little bit. And he knew that I really loved music. So he took me to this local music shop uh, and he knew the owner of this particular music shop and he introduced me to the guy and he was really nice. He was a lovely person to talk to. You know, he made me feel welcomed. I really enjoyed speaking with the guy. And by the time we got done with the, our conversation, he even said, hey, if you want a job, come on back. Talk to me. I'll hook you up. I'll give you a job here. And in my head, I'm going like, wow, that's like the sweetest thing in the world because I love music. And if I can get paid to just hang around a bunch of other musicians and a bunch of instruments and just talk music all day long, that sounds like the greatest thing that could ever happen to me. So I was all on board with that. Fast forward a couple weeks. I'm having another one of those moments of depression. I'm feeling homesick. My roommate again is gone. I have nobody to talk to. And I can remember looking out of the window where we were on the third floor and our window overlooked the common area, the courtyard. And, and I could see all of these people out there just having the greatest time of their life, right? They were embracing this college experience. 
they looked like they were having a blast. And meanwhile, I'm in my room, like the living, breathing embodiment of that Kermit the Frog meme where he's just like holding his hand up against the rainy window, just looking sad and depressed. That's what I was doing. And so I knew that I needed to snap myself out of this. I needed to get out of this depression. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm gonna go back to that music shop. I'm gonna go talk to that guy. I'm gonna get a job and I'm gonna lift my spirits a little bit because music makes me happy and maybe this will be an opportunity for me to like get to know people and and to feel more established in this brand new town. So I drive to the music shop. I walk in the store and like almost immediately, there's like this sense of like something's different here. Has that ever happened to you where you've walked into a place and like almost immediately you knew something was off? Like you just have this like feeling like there's something weird about the vibe going on in this place right now. Now the music shop was under construction. They were remodeling. So they had a lot of stuff kind of like taped off. They had a lot of construction workers going back and forth. And there was, there was three people behind the counter. There was the owner and there were two other employees and they were like huddled around like the counter like this. And they were like deep in concentration and thought. So I patiently, I walked up to the counter and I didn't say anything. I don't want to be rude. They look really busy. And so I, I just stood there. Now, one thing you should know about me is that I'm an introvert and I'm a people pleaser. So I keep to myself and I don't say a whole lot. So I stood there thinking, okay, eventually he's going to look up. He's going to see me. He'll facilitate the conversation and then I'll have a job. Easy peasy. Five minutes later, I'm still standing there. I'm starting to sweat because I'm getting so anxious and so nervous and inside my head, I'm having this like internal argument, right? One side saying like, dude, what are you doing? Just talk to the guy, just say something, cough, clear your throat, say, hello, I'm right here, do you see me? But then, then there's the other side of my brain that's saying like, well, let's, let's hold off here, you know, settle down. You know, we don't want to make any waves. We don't want to be rude. Eventually this man will look up and will acknowledge you. Of course, I listened to that side of my brain and I decided, you know what? He will look up. 20 minutes later, I'm drenched drenched in sweat because I'm just so nervous and so anxious. This is before uh, cell phones were smartphones. So I didn't have anything to do to pass the time other than just awkwardly staying there with my hands in my pockets, you know, staring around, just hoping somebody will look at me and give me the time of day. Finally, the owner looks up. But I'm not talking about like he didn't raise his head and, and, you know, get really friendly. Like it was one of those, like he just lifts his eyes and he's got his little glasses. So he kind of like, you know, looks over the glasses like this. And in like the driest, most unfriendly way says, do you need something? Well, you know, in my head, I'm like, wow, that was really aggressive. Like (laughs) I'm just, I'm just here to, to, to look for a job. So I brushed that off. And I thought, well, maybe he just doesn't remember me. So I was like, well, hey, I was the guy that came in here the other week uh, with my great uncle. And I name dropped just so he would know who I was, thinking that that would somehow change the temperature of the room in the conversation. And so I said, 
I was with, with my great uncle, we were here, and you said something about me potentially being able to work here. So I'm just, you know, coming back to see if you have uh, like a job for me here. And again, he looks at me with like this scowl, like he's just so annoyed that I've walked into his life right now. Like, how dare you? How dare you disrupt what I'm doing? And he gives me the look and he says, in all seriousness, unless you can hang drywall, I have nothing for you. Whoa, what happened with this guy? Keeping in mind that I was already down and, and, and like, I felt bad about myself. I was already depressed. I was already homesick. I felt alone and I was coming here to get a lifeline, you know, to, to make myself feel better. And this man just kicked me while I was already down. And of course, being the people pleaser and the introvert, I said, okay. And I just walked out with like, you know, drenched in sweat. And then like my throat has got this like lump in it, like this big. And, and I'm just in so much like pain, it hurt, right? And I got in the car and I drove back to the parking garage of uh, the college and I just broke down, I just started crying because I felt so alone, I felt so useless. It really hurt the way this guy treated me. And for many of us, you've been hurt like that too. And sadly enough, a lot of us have been hurt like that in the context of church. Now, as we continue our series called Church Hurt, today I wanna to dive into what it looks like when the church hurts the next generation. And specifically, I wanna look at the relationship between David and Saul. Now, I wanna give you kind of like the context of what's happening so far in this story. You see, the Israelites, they were becoming restless. They were seeing all the nations around them and how they were operating. And they started to get jealous. They wanted to be like all the nations that surrounded them. They wanted a king. They wanted to be just like everybody else. And now God and Samuel are telling the Israelites, no, you don't want a king. You don't know what you're asking for. Trust us. It's a bad idea. Stay as far away from it as you possibly can. But the Israelites continued to beg and plead and demand that God give them a king to lead them into a great nation. And so God's like, fine, I'll give you a king. If that's what you really want, here you go. Now he appoints Saul to be the first king of Israel. And Saul started off okay but it didn't take very long for things to kind of go downhill. And eventually Saul starts to make a bunch of mistakes and he makes such a great mistake that God's like, you know what? I'm choosing someone else. And so God anoints David to be Saul's successor. Now David and Saul, they have a unique kind of relationship. David had been playing sweet tunes for Saul with his little harp to make Saul feel better whenever he felt down or, or just kind of depressed or when he felt overwhelmed to try to make him feel better. And David was also Saul's armor bearer. And Saul liked David. 
But I want you to see what happens. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 5. It says, Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by, by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. That's a hit right there. That'd be on the radio. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over 1,000 men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. God had anointed David to be the successor to Saul. And David was extremely successful in all the things that he did because God showed him favor. And of course, this causes Saul to have this extreme bitterness and anger and jealousy, and eventually he just, he's gotten to the point where he's like, you know what, I gotta kill this guy. Instead of embracing David and seeing his potential and helping raise him up as a leader, Saul wanted to keep him down. He was jealous. He wanted all the attention. He wanted the people to sing his praises. And as a result of this, he began to treat David as a threat to his kingdom. And what Saul doesn't realize and what you and I have to realize is this, the next generation isn't a threat. The younger generation is not a threat to the body of Christ. Saul had the opportunity to bring David alongside him to bring God glory. Saul knew that he had lost favor with God. Saul knew that God had chosen David to be his successor. And he had a moment where he could have decided to try to make things right and to say, you know what, I've messed up. But I'm gonna take David under my wing. I'm gonna train him. I'm gonna lead him. I'm gonna embrace him. I'm gonna empower him all for God's glory. But instead, he decided to treat David as a threat. Instead of recognizing God's calling on David's life and taking this opportunity to pour into him and empower him, he tried to eliminate him, just get rid of him. And so often in church, this happens. We treat others, especially the younger generation, as a threat. We begin to separate ourselves. We, we begin to cause divisions. We put up walls between us and people who are younger than us because we don't take them seriously. They're just kids. What do they know? What are they adding 
to the kingdom of God. Or we stifle someone else's growth because, you know what, it's our time to shine. I paid my dues. I sat in the back seat for years. And now that the older generation has passed, it's my time to shine and it's their turn to sit in the back seat. They need to wait until it's their turn. But what we don't realize is that God doesn't put an age limit on calling. God doesn't put an age limit on service. God doesn't just empower people who are over a certain age or who look and act a certain way. And here's my concern that if we live with this mindset that the younger generation is a threat to us and they're a threat to the body of Christ, then we're going to start treating the next generation as the enemy. We're going to start treating younger people like they're an enemy of the church. If you continue to read on in 1 Samuel, you see that Saul continues to be driven by anger and frustration and bitterness and jealousy. And he becomes so enraged that he not only continues to try and hunt down David, he also turns on his own son, Jonathan, and tries to kill him too. He was completely consumed with rage and bitterness, even though David was completely loyal to him. David was loyal to Saul, and Saul treated David like the enemy. When I first started off in ministry, I was around 19 years old, and I had actually started working at our church in, in Tennessee and there were several people that were not enthusiastic about this. They were just like not happy about me working at the church at all. And one of those people happened to be an elder of our church. And he was very vocal about his displeasure with me as a person. Now, I wasn't really sure why. I mean, my job description at the time was to help with worship. I wasn't the worship leader. I was helping with youth, I wasn't the, the youth pastor. I cleaned the church. That's it. I mean, there wasn't some sort of like master plan of mine that I was going to stage some sort of coup and just overthrow the powers of our church and take over and, 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 and then put my will on everybody else. There wasn't anything like that. I was there to learn and to grow and that was it. This was an incredible opportunity for this person to encourage me, to be excited to see me step into God's calling in my life. But instead, he spent his time talking to whoever would listen to him about how he didn't trust me, how he didn't think I was called to ministry or how I just shouldn't be there at all. He treated me like I was the enemy. And we have to be so careful how we treat younger generations. We have to learn from David and Saul and not treat each other as the enemy. And here's how you 
and I can do this. Here's how we can prevent ourselves from treating the younger generation like they're a threat to us or they're an enemy to God. We have to embrace and empower the next generation as the now generation. They're the now generation. This isn't a group of people that in 20, 30, 40 years, then they're gonna do great things. No, they're already here. They're here now, they're here today, and they're already on fire, and they're already passionate to spread the gospel. We should be empowering them and embracing them. Look around you this morning, you've seen it already. We have students and young adults serving in every single ministry area within this church. Worship communication, prayer team, kids ministry, first impressions. We don't have to wait around for them to prove themselves. You and I, today, now, we have an opportunity. We can embrace the younger generation as people who are valuable and who can contribute to the church body, not next week, not next year, not in 10 years, but today, here, and now, they are here. <laughs> as a church body and as a faith community, we should embrace them and empower them for service. We should empower them to be and to do what God is calling them to be and to do. So how do we do this? How do we embrace and empower the next generation? There's three ways that I think that we can do this together. The first is this, grow your faith with them. Grow your faith with them. Here's the thing, if we want to embrace and empower the next generation, this now generation to grow in their faith and to be on fire for Jesus, then we have to live by example. A few weeks ago, I ran across this article that was just released and it had some startling stats and this is from uh, Pew Research. Here are some of their findings. I just wanna read this to you guys. They found that if trends continue the way they have, Christians could decrease from making up 64% of the current U.S. population to as low as 35% by 2070. Now that's a little less than 50 years. And you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? Who cares? I might not even be here. But I want you to think about this. These are your kids. These are your grandkids. And for some of you, these are your great grandkids that we're talking about now. This affects them. And check this, over that same period, they estimate that people who are religiously unaffiliated would rise from the current 30% to as high as 52%. And data shows that 31% of people who are raised Christian become unaffiliated between the ages of 15 and 29. And they describe this, this age group from 15 to 29 as a tumultuous period in which people turn their back on their faith. Can I be honest with you here this morning? If we, as older generations, aren't serious about our faith, 
If we show up to church once every six weeks, once every couple months, maybe Easter and Christmas, and that's it. If we aren't placing an emphasis on taking an active part in the church body, I'm not talking about these four walls here. I'm talking about the faith community, the church body. If we aren't doing that, then why would we be surprised that our kids aren't either? If we find it too awkward to pray for or with our kids. If we're too afraid to read scripture with them, why would we be surprised that our kids don't take faith seriously? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. As parents, we can do and say all of the right things. We really can. We can take them to church 10 times a week. We can pray with them. We can share the message of Jesus with them. We can do all of these things. And then at the end of the day, when they become adults, they could still walk away from their faith. They really could. But here's the thing, when it comes to the way I look at it, when it comes to me and my kids, if my kids become adults and they walk away from their faith in Jesus, it isn't gonna be because I didn't show them the love of Jesus. It's not going to be because I was too afraid to pray for them and with them. It's not gonna be because I was too afraid to read them scripture and to tell them about Jesus. We have to be serious about our faith our kids' lives, their souls, their salvation depend on us. They are looking at us today. They're looking at us right now. They see how we live. They see how we react. And if we aren't living faithfully to Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if they aren't either. We have to lead them by example and grow our faith with them. The second thing we need to do is this, serve beside them. We have to serve beside them. When I was in high school and I kind of felt this, this pull towards ministry, I can remember my youth pastor really leaned into that. He really leaned into that. And he invited me to become an intern when I was in high school to serve alongside of him. And it was through that that I was empowered to start singing and leading worship. Because before that, I had never sang before. I didn't even think I could carry a tune. I didn't know. And some of you might think I still can't. That's fine. But I began to do things that I didn't normally do because I felt empowered by my youth pastor because he brought me along to serve beside him. And one of the statements that my youth pastor used to say to me all the time is success isn't success unless there's a successor. That has stuck with me since. It has never left my mind. If we're not raising people up and empowering younger generations and serving with those who are younger or different than us, we failed. One of the greatest things about Thrive is that isn't the case. I don't know if you've noticed. But nothing makes me happier than seeing middle school students serving alongside adults in the prayer team. How amazing is that? 
It's awesome seeing students lead worship. They're unafraid and they're unashamed to lead us adults into the presence of God. How crazy is it that students run the entire production? And we have students serving in the kids' ministry. They're already pouring into the younger generation. That's how it's supposed to be. This is what being the church means. Every generation serving together and on fire for Jesus. And finally, the last thing is this. Learn from them. Here's what I know. I don't know everything. I don't know everything. Every week I'm learning something new from students. We all have something to contribute. Older generations, you have wisdom. You have experience. And in a lot of cases, you have patience. But here's what I've noticed about younger generations. They have energy and they aren't afraid to try new things. It's so crazy. When the pandemic hit, we were presented with a whole new set of problems here at Thrive. Problems that we had never faced. We needed to build a brand new team from scratch and to train them on things that we didn't know how to use ourselves. So we turned to the students. They know technology. It's crazy. And they accepted the challenge with confidence that they could figure it out. And they had a faithfulness to keep trying new things. And on top of that, they weren't afraid to train new volunteers. It's been amazing to learn from them over the past couple of years. And they have added so much to this church. We have to make sure that we don't treat the younger generation as a threat. We have to make sure that we don't treat the younger generation as an enemy to the body of Christ, but instead embrace them as the now generation. Serve beside them, empower them. Lead by example and show them the love of Jesus. We have an opportunity. We can either choose to be like Saul and how he was with David and to treat younger generations like they're a threat to us, like they're the enemy, or we can embrace them and we can empower them and we can be the church together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have for us. We thank you, God, that you show us grace and mercy every single day. God, I pray that we would be a church that shines your light, that we would be a church that doesn't turn our back on younger generations, but instead that we would embrace them, that we would accept them, that we would empower them, 
that we would lead by example, that they would look at us as older generations, having gone through all sorts of experiences, that they would look at us and that they would see Jesus in our lives. They would see Jesus in the way that we act, in the way that we talk, and that they would come into a relationship with you because of this. God, may we be a church that shines your love daily. God, I thank you. I thank you for the students that we have here at Thrive, their willingness to serve you with passion, their willingness to step into the role that you're calling them to. I thank you, God, for their boldness and their love of you. And God, I pray that if there is somebody in this room that wants to come into a relationship with you here today, that they would pray this prayer with me. God, I know that I have sinned. I know that I fall short of your glory in every way. But I believe, God, that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins, that he was buried and that he rose again. And it was through that act that we have been made right with you. God, here, now, today, I choose you. I choose to be in relationship with you. God, I thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. And we pray this in your name. Amen.